All right, Second Peter, chapter number one, and uh, I won't go back and review everything, as uh, we have uh, spent some time uh, looking at, in a, in a way, the, the the doctrine of bibliology. But I'm trying to keep it on a practical level as we get involved in conversations of evangelism, or maybe even with believers who who are not. Uh, well-versed on the doctrine of the Bible and not maybe understanding revelation, inspiration, and uh, some of these other uh, topics that we will look at. So it's important for us, even as believers who have maybe been saved for many years, mature believers, it's important for us, once again, to be reinforced in our understanding of how we got the Bible, the authority of God's Word, and how to then disciple others in uh, that same uh, doctrine, or in these same uh, topics, these same doctrines, and so Second Peter, chapter number one, and uh, we'll uh, we'll jump from here back into our lesson. But Second Peter one, and coming down again to uh, verse number nineteen. Let me get to the right page here in my Bible. There we go. Second Peter one and verse nineteen. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we come back to this place in scripture, and once again, we have looked at Revelation, God making himself known to man. And then we've been, as of last week, and again into this week, we have been breaking down in detail inspiration, God's method for delivering his word to man. And then eventually uh, we will look at uh, these other words and uh, dive into these topics and these truths, these doctrines regarding bibliology. But let's go back again for review, and let's go to Revelation. And we see here in uh, this passage, we see here in verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. This is not something that man just made up, nor could have made up. And this truth, this body of truth, has been delivered by God, revealed by God, God breathed. These are the very words of God. And so we get down to verse 21 again of 2 Peter 1. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. There again we see it. This is not something that man just made up, that man concocted, that man tried to come up with and write down. Oh, I hope this works. I hope this can be a way in which I can can control or can have power or I can guilt trip or I can... Uh, maybe kind of live my life this way and maybe somebody else will come along and they'll figure out another way and that'll work for them and you do you and I do me and uh, you have your truth and I have my truth. No. This is the revealed word of God. These are the very breathed, God-breathed words of God. This is God's revelation of himself. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved 
by the Holy Ghost. So we've talked about general revelation, creation, conscience, and the soul. And then special revelation, of course, the Bible and Jesus Christ, God's Son, the living word. We've talked about uh, these specific definitions. For instance, unger, revelation is a divine act of communicating to man truth which otherwise man could not know. We looked at Carl Henry's quote, and it's a little bit more theological, a little bit deeper maybe. Revelation is the divinely initiated activity, God's free communication by which he alone turns his personal privacy into a deliberate disclosure of his reality. So can I pause there for a minute? God defines reality. God defines it. Man doesn't make up, and I know there's this VR that now Zuckerberg has tried to promote the metaverse, and now there's virtual just about everything. That's not reality, and Satan is a master at trying to get us to live in a fantasy world, in a fantasy land. Because Satan is a liar from the beginning, he's a murderer, his lies are to destroy. Here we see again in this definition, this quote, that revelation is a divinely initiated activity, God's free communication by which he alone turns his personal privacy into a deliberate disclosure of his reality. Divine revelation is given for human benefit, offering us privileged communion with our creator in the kingdom of God. Some time looking at this body of truth in the proof text, for instance, Jude verse 3, the faith once delivered unto the saints, handed over, given over, delivered, entrusted is the way we define that word. We looked at these verses already. And then we went back even to Deuteronomy and see even in the Old Testament the teaching regarding the revelation of the Word of God. And again, defining the faith as the whole body of truth, the sum of what Christians believe. And these are a handful of proof texts that speak of the faith, that speak of the delivering of the body of truth of God's revealed Word to man in written form. So then we took some time last week and we began to break down in detail inspiration. God's method for delivering his word to man. Okay, so we've looked at some things that uh, inspiration is not, or the method I should say, the methods that God did not use. Okay, God did not use angels. He could have had angelic beings Beam messages up in the sky, you know, like those planes that fly around with those banners behind them. And you're sitting there squinting, trying to figure out what it's all about. And again, I grew up in the shadows of the Indy 500 track. And right around the end of May and even all throughout the month of May, there'd be these little planes flying around or there'd be the Goodyear blimp. That was a lot of fun one time when the Goodyear blimp landed at the little airport out uh, near uh, Greenfield. And we drove the kids over and we got right up against the fence and the Goodyear blimp was probably, I don't know, maybe 50 yards from the fence. It was really cool. You don't realize how massive that thing is. You know, there's all these messages, promotions, advertisements. God didn't put the angels up in the sky. Now, did God use angels to uh, 
bring man to a place where even God would use a, an angel as a messenger like to Joseph, uh, to, to Mary, uh, to John, to, to other uh, Bible figures. And those angelic messages were the revealed word of God, the inspired word of God. Sure, but God did not take angels and put messages in the sky or beam down angelic through the angelic lights, words on the printed page. He used man, and he breathed his word through man in written form into, onto the, the written page, papyrus and the various animal skins and things that they used in those days, the scrolls, to pen those words. He didn't use special tablets. Of course, that's a reference to Mormonism and uh, these, uh, the idea of, of the, the tablets being you know, secret tablets and being discovered and new revelation and all that nonsense. And he didn't use secret codes and messages. And there's people who to this day believe that there are hidden codes. The real meaning, the real message of the Bible is found in the secret codes. And have you ever seen some of these ridiculous people who think that there's all these messages and these numbers? They have all the, they have the numeral. I, I, I went through several biblical theology classes, and I never took a Bible class on numerology. But there are some people that you pick up. I mean, there's the, the, can I just say they're idiots? All right, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be disparaging. But there are some idiots out there on the Internet who won't spend any time really studying the Word of God and submitting to the authority of God's Word. But they'll go in and they'll study all the numbers and all the hidden meanings. And that's where God truly revealed himself. That's nothing but a bunch of pride. I'm the one who has the special gift of having the real meaning, and I can then declare it to you, and then therefore I can have power and control over you is what it's ultimately all about. He didn't use television, video, internet. You know, and again... I'm thankful that God didn't put Snapchat in the first century. I'm glad, I am certainly glad that TikTok wasn't around in the, the early days of the, uh, the, the modern century. I mean, what a mess. Social media has created so many problems. I know it has useful functions, but social media, I, I hear more and more and more about the negative effects that social media is having on our young people. It's scary the way that girls are consumed with their looks, the way boys are consumed with all of the adventures and the risk-taking and all the other things that come with uh, the, the social media. And there's all of the evils of the Internet and the dark places. And can I just go ahead and say the evils of the immorality that is shared and apps like Tinder, dating apps like Tinder that are just hookup apps that just breed immorality and vanity and vexation of spirit. I'm so glad that God gave us the written word, verbal plenary inspiration, the whole Bible in written form, every word inspired by God, God breathed. And though, though, though television, though media... Though the internet can be a place for proclaiming the word, it was not the medium that God chose to reveal his word, to reveal his will to us. Okay? 
Again, the medium affects the message. Just like with music, the sound affects the message. And we have to remember that. But it's not that television, video, and internet aren't ways that we can proclaim the gospel. Let me go on a little bit more of a rabbit trail here. All right, I don't want to get too carried away. But I've, I've, I've heard scholarly people talk about how they do not depend upon social media for the proclamation and for the primary teaching of their theological truths, of their ministries. And I know a man who built his church on social media, on technology. And I'm an IT guy. I love, I'm not a, an expert by any means, but I love technology. But I watched a guy who basically quit loving people and ministering to people because it was all about creating social media and getting the sermon of the week on Instagram, on YouTube, on TikTok, and, and getting that little advertisement for his upcoming sermon. And I'm not saying there is no place for that. I'm not saying that we won't have a Facebook page or an Instagram at some point. But we don't build our church on social media. We don't build our church on PowerPoint. This is a tool. We used to talk about this in school all the time. It was not necessarily a great thing for all the computers and the iPads and tablets to come into the classroom. I don't think cell phone use in the classroom has been beneficial to the overall product of education. These are tools, just like a chalkboard and a whiteboard are a tool. They are simply a hammer or a screwdriver or whatever tool is in the toolbox. They don't make up the message. They don't determine the message. They're simply tools. And I don't ever want media and internet and all that to distract from the truth of the word of God. What did they do in the USSR? When the persecution, what did they do in underground China? Where the underground church has to meet? They, didn't make, they may not have all of the internet tools and the PowerPoint and the social media. They certainly probably can't use TikTok in, in, in certain, some places. They probably can't use YouTube in a lot of places. I know they couldn't 50 years ago in the USSR. What did they do? They had the written words. Some of the times in the gulags, they only had what they had in memory. And they would try to write it down. Paul in the dungeon, he said, bring me the parchments and the books. The scrolls, excuse me. He wanted the word of God brought to him. So again, not that these things can't be used as tools, the television, the video, the internet. But the medium is subservient to the message. And the mode is important. God gave us the written word. And he gave us the living word in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word was with God and the word was God. And we know that from John chapter 1. We talked about, spent a lot of time, the bulk of our time last week, on four non-scriptural views of inspiration natural inspiration that men reached high levels of creativity or ability like Handel and his writing of the messiah so john had that same kind of high level of creativity when he wrote the epistles and he wrote the book of revelation he was just really feeling it that day you know he just was really excited about what he had to say and he reached a high level of creativity of ability all of his education all of his experiences 
all the energy that he had of that day, it all kind of came together and he was able to produce the book of Revelation and people were like, wow, John really had a good, is, it, is that, no, that's not inspiration. And there's a, as a matter of fact, there were probably things that Moses wrote, okay, about the children of Israel and even about his own failures. Can you imagine Moses, by the inspiration of God, writing about his failures in Egypt in the book of Exodus? Moses is the one who, was, who wrote the inspired word of God of the first five books of the Old Testament, of the Bible. He's probably, I mean, he's the one, right? Writing by the inspiration of God about how he failed in the wilderness. Can you imagine how painful that must have been for Moses to write about his failures and being reminded of his 40 years in the wilderness after he murdered the Egyptian and then all the having to go back through and be reminded as he's writing of all the things that the Israelites complained about. But he did so by the revelation of God, by uh, the word of God breathed out through him. It wasn't just a high level of creativity or ability. Partial inspiration, the Bible merely contains the word of God. You'll hear things like, well, the Bible is accurate when it comes to spiritual or religious things, but not when it comes to math, science, history. There are errors when it comes to historical things, when it comes to science, when it comes to some of the numbers and you know, some of the math, uh, if you want to call it that. Things don't always add up, but at least on the spiritual and religious, we can trust the Bible. Now, how can we trust the spiritual? How can we trust the Bible for eternal truths to save our souls if God was wrong about the six days of creation? If God was wrong about the Hittites or the Amorites or the Amalekites, they were just made up. Hmm, I'm going to try to let me think of some, let me think of a bunch of ites that I can write down and and, and, and they'll, 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 they'll be the enemies of God's people. And I'll just scribble them out. And hopefully people out there will, will think it's a good story. And in doing that, I can have some good moral teachings. That's nonsense. But that's the way some people treat the Bible. Conceptual inspiration. God only inspired the thoughts of Scripture. And then the Bible becomes the Word of God. These are two areas where even good churches sometimes can begin to get a little wayward. That only the thoughts of Scripture were inspired, and again, that then makes the person, the man, the ultimate authority on what gets recorded. God gives them the idea, but then in his creativity, his ability, his whatever, he then becomes the authority on what actually gets written. See how that comes short of the God-breathed words of God, the inspired word of God? And then the Bible becomes the Word of God. Encounter theory, existential. This is that we get in a big group and everybody shares their ideas of what that passage means to me. So one passage that God wrote, that God breathed, okay, that one passage that has a clear meaning, and yes, it has a primary application, it may have a secondary application, but that passage only becomes the word of God as it means something to me. So John 3.16 means a lot to me, but the begats and the details of the tabernacle and the temple, those aren't inspired. Because those, I mean, when I'm reading through in my devotions, I don't really get excited about the begats and the details of the tabernacle. But John 3.16, oh, especially Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13 is very inspired. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
With God, all things are possible. Luke, uh, I think that's chapter number one. Those are really inspired, right? But the begats and the details of the temple and the tabernacle, eh, I don't know. When I get into my group study and start thinking about what does that passage mean to you, what, what does that passage mean to me, the begats and the details of the tabernacle, you know, they don't really get me excited. But Philippians 4.13, it really means something to me. As a matter of fact, I want to go out and do something that I know is wrong, but I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I mean, that's the way some people apply it. They'll apply Philippians 4.13 to something that is clearly not of God because they have become the authority on what is right and what is wrong. They may not come right out and say it, but they live it. Okay, so there's dangers, especially in, well, in all of those, but in 3 and 4, we see even good churches, even, even evangelical Christian professing churches that, and professing Christians who will make the mistakes of getting caught up in, in uh, conceptual or the uh, encounter theory of the Bible becomes the Word of God. Okay, we spent a lot of time on that last week. That was a quick review. Any follow-up questions or statements? Yes, Jeff? Right. Yes. Yes. Correct. And all things is ultimately submitted to what God's will is, what God's word says. Right. Yeah. You're right. Foundations, it's extremely important. You're right. This is why I entitled it Bible Basics for Discipleship. And I know as a, being a sports fan in this application with athletics, I don't know how many times we go back to the basics. In basketball, dribble, shoot. Don't pass the ball to the other team. You know, basics. The found, I mean, sometimes they're, they're so busy trying to shoot threes and doing behind-the-back passes and that's one of the things I love about baseball is there's so much that is just basics. There's so many things that you just have to do. You've got to pick up the ball, you've got to throw it, and somebody's got to catch it, and they've got to have their foot on the base or place the tag. There's so many basics. 
And yeah, it's nice to see a 450 or 500 foot home run, but I'm a Tony Gwynn fan to this day who he hardly hit home runs, but he could hit for 330, 350 batting average. And he did all the basics year in and year out throughout his career. And he's one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And we forget that in the Christian life. We want, to, we want all the sensational. We want all the excitement. We want all the attention. We want all the fame and fortune or whatever. Nickels and noses or whatever you want to call it. And we forget about the foundation. And you're right. Jesus often brought us right back to the foundation. Amen for that. All right. So we started on this last week, and uh, we looked at just a few of these points. Again, when dealing with what inspiration is, we think of a special group of men set apart by God to write his word. Prophets, apostles, those who were close to the apostles. We talk about the book of Mark. We mentioned that last week. That is Peter... Mark is the one writing by the inspiration of God, but that is essentially Peter's account. The word, the the God-breathed words were God's words, but God used the personality and the experiences of Peter, and obviously Mark and his close association with Peter, that he was simply writing what basically Peter was giving an account of as an eyewitness. Oops, I went too far. There we go. And then God's prepared men using and transcending their personalities for the writing of his word. I used the illustration of a stick in a stream last week. The stick follows the current of the stream. Those men followed the current of the Holy Spirit. The stick remained distinct from the stream. The stream remained distinct from the stick. But those men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. They only wrote what God breathed for them to write, while at the same time maintaining and transcending their personalities, using their experiences. God prepared those men for the writing of his word. Okay, That's a hard thing sometimes in our minds to fully comprehend. But... uh, Maybe a simple illustration, it's a little, maybe a little on the silly side, but how many times do we see our children doing or saying, or they are acting in a way that you look at them, you hear them, you see them, you're like, ugh. Or sometimes it's like, yes. You know, I wish we had more of those, yes. <laughs> and most, most of the time it's like, oh. But they're, they are... Speaking and they're acting in our likeness. They're even repeating the very words. It's their words, but it's our words that we're hearing, right? Okay, that's not the best illustration, but those men 
those 40 different authors, they kept their personality, they kept their writing style. We can look at Peter and we can look at John and we can see distinct writing styles. We can look at Moses. And do we realize that Moses wrote in a literary style that was common for that day? Moses wrote in Genesis 1. He wrote in a summary form. Here's the six days. Then he went back and gave us detail. Then he went back and gave us some more detail. Again, I'm a sports fan. I have read numerous articles about sports games. I do it to this day. The first paragraph, usually, if you read an article about a game, usually the first paragraph is just the basic summary of what happened. LeBron threw a big fit and somebody else got kicked out of the game. And then you go down a little further in the next paragraph. And then you find out more of the details about the circumstances that led to LeBron throwing a fit and the other guy getting kicked out. And then you go down to the third paragraph and you get all the boring details. So-and-so scored 27 points. So-and-so had so many rebounds and this was the, this was the winning streak and la, 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 right? A literary style that we still practice today. But people will go to Genesis 1 and say, well, somebody else wrote the first six you know, the first however many verses of Genesis 1, and somebody else wrote this, and somebody else wrote this. Oh, it's just an allegory. Baloney. And you can buy that for $1.50 at Payless, okay? That was God-breathed words that Moses wrote in the literary style that he knew and understood and had even been prepared in an educated environment in the University of Egypt getting a master's degree at the School of Nile. I don't understand completely how God did that, but God gave Moses writing ability in those experiences, but he breathed the very words that Moses would write and yet kept a literary style that makes sense and we can historically look back and say, yeah, there's nothing unusual about the way Moses wrote. It's just like we still practice today in a lot of the things that we write. And so it's a common literary style. It's part of the humanity that God preserved while still inspiring his word and breathing his word. All right, let's see here. And then uh, men wrote things that were hard to understand or they would not otherwise have known. I already mentioned Moses with creation, Daniel. He could have known all about those kingdoms. Sorry, I'm having a little bit of a technical glitch here again. That'll keep you awake this morning, right? (laughs) Daniel with the kingdoms, John, of course, heaven, revealed things that there's no way they could have known them had God not revealed it to them. And then three more points about inspiration. God inspired them to write about some things of which they had been eyewitnesses. Sure. Eyewitness accounts in the court of law today, eyewitness accounts are extremely important. Video evidence Body cams, boy, isn't that in the news today? And first-hand evidence, first-hand accounts. But of God, the inspiration of God, excuse me, revelation inspiration, but the inspiration of God is even greater than an eyewitness account. Was Moses there when God created the universe? But God gave Moses exactly what to write breathe those words greater than even an eyewitness account. Now, can there be an eyewitness account of an accident? You can be at the filling station. The accident happens at the intersection. 
you were an eyewitness, but you were an eyewitness from over here. You heard, you smelled, you turned and saw, but the eyewitness who was in the car, in the accident, that eyewitness account maybe takes a little more weight than the eyewitness who was standing over at the gas pump maybe watching the whole thing happen. And then you, you talk to investigators, and because of all the emotions and because of our humanity, you can get several eyewitness accounts, and they'll differ slightly because people react differently, different emotions, different things happen. And so a good investigator will take several different eyewitness accounts of the same event and piece it all together because there's a commonality that they can use to bring their their, their evidence to a conclusion. So it's fascinating when you read some of this stuff. Yes, John and Luke, P- Peter, Paul, eyewitness accounts. But can I say it this way with all reverence and respect? God fine-tuned their eyewitness accounts so that God breathed to them the very words that he would have them record to write that God wanted them to write about that account. So why do we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, with a lot of commonalities, and then we have John, who wrote a lot of things that are different, but the same events. Isn't that amazing? I love how the unity of God's word, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. Well, God gave us three in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then he added a fourth, to even make it more certain in in one sense. But all of those accounts were God-breathed. And was there one maniac of Gadara or was there more than one man there? Was one author lying when he didn't include the other maniac that was there? Of course he wasn't lying. But he had a particular that God had revealed, that God had inspired for him to write about that account, and he focused on that one man. It doesn't mean that he lied. It just means that the other author, by the inspiration of God, revealed additions to the story. There was no deception. There was no dishonesty. There were no lies. God used each account and breathed the words by the inspiration of God for them to write. And then God inspired men to write, th- write about things that human nature would normally ignore or minimize. I think someone brought up week, um, and there's a quote here by Lewis uh, Schaefer, the Bible is not such a book write if he could, or could write if he would. What do, when we look at historical, archaeological records, what often is left out? Many times, when you go to, when they dig in the desert sands of some of these ancient civilizations, sometimes there are things that are left out that get pieced together with other records. What gets left out? The defeats, the declines, the, the bad things that that person did. Oh, I don't, want, I don't want to record that I murdered all the children to ages two and younger. I don't want to record that I massacred, that I crucified, that I stuck people through with spirit. I don't want to include that we lost at the battle of such and such. But God is brutally honest 
about the lives of his people so that even the great chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, we see in that chapter people who we read in other places in Scripture where they had failure. And after God's own heart. How do you read Psalm 18 as I just did this past week in my devotions? How do I read Psalm 18 and I see David declaring his integrity and not in my mind say, how can you write that, David? You were an adulterer. You sought revenge. You conspired to murder. Well, we can talk about the forgiveness of God. We can talk about David's heart after on God. We can talk about his repentance. We can talk about a man who, like us, has failure. Don't stay in that failed place. We beg for forgiveness. We desire to do better. We clean up as best we can, confess and forsake. And we all sit here as crooked sticks that God is using to draw a straight line. And some of us are more crooked and knotty than others. <laughs> some of us still have some thorns and some briars that we're still trying to pick off. But we're thankful that God uses us in spite of ourselves. That doesn't mean that we go out and sin and say, God, use me. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do what I want, but God, use me anyway. No, that's not, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But we're thankful that God uses us and God even had these men, probably painfully so sometimes, record things even about their own lives that were failure. Proofs of inspiration. We'll have just a few minutes to touch on these, then we'll come back, Lord willing, next week. And uh, see, I have the whole year 2023 to, to do this. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think Dan Clark's going to uh, take a month, and I'm going to give Earl uh, uh, an opportunity as well, and uh, maybe someone else as, as the Lord uh, would lead, but proofs of inspiration. Okay, we have to begin with the testimony of Jesus Christ. Matthew four and verse number four. Do we know that verse? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Jesus Himself talks about the word of God, and it being essential for us to live. And don't we get the the daily bread maybe from from that that uh, that passage, the the devotional? John 10 and verse 35. Does anybody know that verse? Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. Luke 16 and verse 29. And this is, I believe, the passage when I was preparing this lesson. Luke 16 and verse 29. Yes. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So Jesus is giving this, the, 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 the accounts of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich, rich man is in torment, and he wants his brethren to hear the gospel. He wants somebody to come back from the dead. He wants Lazarus uh, to come back from the dead and tell his, his brethren how to get saved so they don't come to this place. Verse 29 of Luke 16, Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, the one rose from the dead. The word of God. And that's the very words of Jesus. Obviously, the whole Bible, 
This is the God-breathed words of, of, of God. But Jesus, in this account, these are his very words. If you have a red-letter edition, they're in red. And he is saying, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they don't listen to the Old Testament, it doesn't matter if somebody comes back from the dead and smells like fire and brimstone and has fire singed on their hair. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they don't believe the word of God, they won't listen to someone who comes back from the dead. They must be saved by the word of God. All right, and then verse, uh, we already read verse 31. And then Luke 24 and verse 27, uh, we know this event as well. After the, resur- after the resurrection, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes alongside them. Verse 27 of uh, Luke 24. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, emphasizing the inspiration, the authority of the Old Testament, and essentially, of course, uh, the entire 66 books, the canon of scripture, would, would eventually be included in that, and we know that today. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There we see it, the very words of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus to the inspiration of the Bible. And then can we not make um, reference to change lives? Think about the, just the Apostle Paul, Saul to Paul. How, how, how would somebody who had all the righteousness, had all the credentials, who had all the religiosity, why would he have given all that up to be a part of a Christian sect that was considered of ill repute, uneducated, worthless, contrary, whatever word you want to use to describe, why would Paul have given up all of that righteousness, all of that education, all of that self-righteousness, why would he have given all that up to follow Christ and to be identified with Christ? Unless God saved him. Unless God did a glorious work and saved his wretched soul and he would say it to his dying day, I am the chief of sinners. Because he recognized how that righteousness was filthy rags. It was dung, he calls it in Philippians 3. The power of the word of God to change his life. Think about us. We're a mess. And God saved us. What wonderful testimonies we heard last week. I tell you, it puts tears in my eyes when I hear it's like what Hank and Kelly gave last week. I don't have a testimony like that, but I know what God saved me from. Because I'm a wretched sinner. And I'm thankful I got saved when I was young. But boy, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mess. And, and, and God saved me from a lot of wickedness. And I still have that wicked sin nature that has its putrefying effect. But I'm thankful I'm saved and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. And by the grace of God, I, I am what I am, as, as the Apostle Paul would write. But think about our lives I love how Kelly talked about her, her mom. Uh, Gary and Ginny over here, if I can pick on them for a minute. And Kelly goes to her mom and said, what would you do with my mom? What happened to her? There's this same person that looks the same, but she doesn't act the same. She doesn't talk the same. Where would she go? That's the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the word of God, the power of the gospel to change lives. 
And that transformation is only by the work of God. We could go back to historical figures whose lives have been changed, and on and on. John Newton, uh, George Mueller. Um, we could go to so many different individuals. But each and every one of us has a testimony as a saved individual. And if you're sitting here today unsaved, God can change your life too. can take you out of the, of the miry clay and set your feet on a rock and put a new song in your mouth. All right, we're, we're really out of time. We'll get into next week, Lord willing, we'll get into prophecy, fulfilled prophecy as a proof of inspiration. And this is fascinating because I want to look at historical prophecy. I want to look at messianic prophecy. And then I want to get into scientific accuracy and historical accuracy. And then the indestructibility of the Bible. And then finally the canon of scripture. So we'll uh, try to tackle some of that again, Lord willing, next week. But any final closing comments or questions? Yes, Jeff? You got two minutes. <laughs> I'm, te- I'm teasing you. I'm, I'm picking on you. Go ahead. Sorry, I just wasted f- 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Correct. Correct. Right. Correct. We have the eyewitness of the Father. We have the eyewitness of the Trinity who revealed that to Moses. So in that sense, he's an eyewitness of what the Father and what the Trinity revealed. Right. Right. Yeah, God, God is multitasking in so many ways as an being, as God in three persons. We have the rock of God's word that we can stand firm on. Amen. Thank you for that. All right, let's close in prayer and then we'll get ready for the service. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for these doctrinal truths of revelation and inspiration that solidify our faith, that are the rock, the foundation upon which we stand. And Lord, help us to remain faithful to your word. Plus now in this. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll get ready for the service to start in about 15, 16 minutes.